Hello and welcome to another Martial Arts Journey podcast episode. Uh, this one I was really looking forward to share with you. It's actually one of the inspirational points which uh, made me create the Martial Arts Journey podcast because prior to this interview I was mainly focusing on YouTube. Uh, but I realized uh, this talk made me realize that if I want to find the best answers, I should look for the best people who have dedicated years upon years to find those answers in these specific areas rather than to try to just find them all myself uh, by my own trial and error uh, kind of method. And uh, this interview with uh, martial arts legend Nat Thornton is exactly that. It's it's one of the best talks I ever had with anyone, uh, one of the most valuable, enjoyable talks. And uh, I realized this needs to spread this needs such information needs to spread and and that inspired me to think of using not only youtube for this for these podcasts because youtube is not very comfortable for you for listening to them and to use the podcast itself to to present this such amazing talks as this one so why this talk is amazing first of all let me tell a bit about uh matt thornton so i heard a lot about matt uh, when i when i started questioning my Aikido, when I started questioning traditional martial arts, uh, I would keep I would keep coming, stumbling up uh, to a concept of aliveness, uh, that traditional martial arts lack specifically aliveness. Uh, in other words, that there's not no pressure testing, it's very coordinated, very cooperative, uh, it's very limited and, and framed in a specific setting, which makes the practice uh, not really live up to something which is realistic because in reality no one is going to form how you will move and of course forms are necessary but if you train without resistance or in other words without aliveness without energy there's no timing that you develop there's no uh, there's lack of uh, live energy so many things which which Matt himself would talk about in the interview uh, but I so I kept hearing about this this term aliveness that that's what's missing in traditional martial arts, and I later realized that actually Matt uh, Matt Thornton is the one who came up with this uh, with this idea with this term, and he's the person responsible for spreading it around. He kind of came up with this concept and really started the whole conversation of the fact that it's missing in traditional martial arts that aspect of aliveness upon other things. And while I had. I thought about asking Nathaniel Chalkin to give me some insights about aliveness because he learned, uh, he learned, he he practiced with Matt Thornton for a while. I realized, no, what I'm just going to give a shot and ask Matt himself if he would agree to do an interview with me, although we had no connections between ourselves, like direct connections. And I thought it's a, it's a big risk. I mean, it's it's a big of a long shot because uh, he's so well known and. Uh, I'm still just developing as a, as a public figure, but he agreed. He agreed uh, after listening to my story, and I was super excited, super happy. And then the talk is the result of what you will hear about. Just to give you a bit information about Matt that I collected myself, he's uh, he's been been doing martial arts for 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 quite a few decades, uh, so a lot of experience. He's one of the first, if not the first at all. You need to double check that, but I think he's one of the first, if not the first. Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belts, who's a Westerner outside, or I mean, in the states or outside of Brazil, which is, I think, a big achievement. 
uh, and uh, he started off in Jeet Kune Do, and then he started to see the limitations of it, which we'll talk about in the talk, and then he moved into more functional martial arts, uh, such as boxing, wrestling, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and uh, he started doing, uh, he start, started basically coming up with MMA before the UFC, before the UFC happened, so, so he was ahead of the curve uh, before he, he started doing that before the big explosive uh, kind of everyone realizing that martial arts uh, are lacking something so 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 he's a like I could say he's a visionary in that and he also started SBG straight blast gym which is now an international uh, association or organization which uh, consists of I think more than 35 gyms across the whole world, including the famous SBG Ireland, where Conor McGregor is, is training and where Conor McGregor developed as a fighter with John Kavanaugh. And uh, Matt is one, is Matt, Matt is, as far as I understand, um, the kind of the main teacher of uh, John, at least in uh, in brazilian jiu-jitsu so so this is kind of the information that i collected it's just clear that matt has a tremendous amount of experience knowledge and he has a very scientific very clear mind very 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 well very well mm, argumented detailed you'll you hear it all in the talk so so definitely in my opinion one of the best sources of these answers that one can find so i hope you will enjoy this talk as much as i did I hope you will find your answers that you're searching for. And yeah, and then I'll see you and talk to you in the next podcast. And I uh, wish you to enjoy this one. You did Jeet Kune Do. Yes. You were an instructor as well. It was not just... Yes. So I'm very much looking at trying to understand what it is that makes martial arts effective and, and vice versa. And many people are still clinging to some martial arts as effective and some of them are pretty much done. Uh, like Aikido, very few right. people believe the effectiveness, mainly Aikido people <laughs> believe in it. But there's some like Bing Chun and uh, also Jeet Kune Do where people do believe that it's still an effective martial art. Yet, as much as I read into your biography, you became disillusioned by it. Correct. Yes. It's, it's also so weird for me because Bruce Lee was all about making things effective. And there's this moment, you realizing that there's something lacking in it. So could you tell us yes. about that? Sure. Um, I was drawn to Jeet Kune Do because I was looking for truth. I was looking for truth in martial arts. And I, and I, I was interested in what works and what doesn't in the context of, of just fighting. And the idea of Jeet Kune Do, which is a very utilitarian idea, even the motto itself, um, you know, absorb what is useful, reject what is useless, which is something right. that Bruce Lee had taken from Mao Zedong. But, but that utilitarian motto is appealed to me. And when I would see the articles written by Dan and Asano and other people, they talked about fighting in all four ranges. And I'd been in more than a few street fights as a kid where I had been taken down and just put in a headlock mm -hmm. and held down and beat up by, you know, wrestlers mm -hmm. or just kids that were better on the ground than me. So I knew that I needed that. And I also had... Uh, my father was always a boxing fan and I kind of grew up understanding that if you're going to fight with your hands and you're going to punch, then the delivery system is going to be most effective. It's going to be boxing based. So from that outside perspective, I was seeing people who were doing boxing. And when Bruce Lee incorporated boxing in the movies, that was of course way ahead of his time. Cause up to that point it had been, as you know, mostly Chinese opera. 
Right. And so they had the boxing and they had the idea of needing to be able to fight at all ranges and fight on the ground. And they had the idea of having form follow function as opposed to the other way around, all of which yeah. I found appealing. What I discovered after becoming an instructor and doing it for a number of years is because their epistemology was lacking, they had gone off track. And in addition to that, I just ran into a whole bunch of hypocrisy, which, which really bothered me. So they would... You know, if you remember back in the day, Dan Asano had a book called Absorb What is Useful. And it was filled with photographs, actually, with the Paul Vunak and it was some other um, of the original Kali instructor, Kali Academy instructors in there. And they'd have side-by-side -side comparisons of Shotokan karate stance and punches in comparison to Western boxing. And I, I think that was good. And I think that's educational. And that's the kind of thing you would do in any other field of human knowledge or any other science where we want to expand on what our ancestors have done and build the knowledge for the next generation. So I, I, I found that good. But the problem I discovered in Jeet Kune Do is where they had that. And then on, at the same time, they're adopting something like Penjok Silat, which was, if anything, even more ridiculous than Shotokan. Mm. And there was disconnect there. Because they had a, a certain affection for Southeast Asian martial arts or, you know, whatever the reasoning was, they weren't congruent with their own line of thinking. So that ultimately led to different philosophy from the other instructor that I was partnered with. And that's what prompted me initially to open up my first school, my own school. Where did you start? Were you already training in BJJ when you opened your school or? I had met a gentleman by the name of Fabio Santos, who was one of Hickson and Holes Gracie's black belts. And he was up here in Portland. And this was a couple of years prior to the first UFC. And so most people didn't know what Gracie Jiu Jitsu was. There wasn't really any schools outside of LA. So he was, I think he was building surfboats or uh, surfboards. And he had put an ad in the newspaper asking for people to come and try and beat him up and he would pay you. <laughs> and at the time I was also, while I was teaching Jeet Kune Do here in Portland, I was at the same time attending a a boxing gym here and doing some boxing. So I thought to myself, I, I get beat up every day at the boxing gym and, I, and I'm not getting paid. So uh, a friend of mine and I went down there and tried it and it, you know, predictable results. Fabio took me down and mounted and then would do a submission. He was, he was a super nice guy. He was a gentleman and I was immediately, immediately hooked on jujitsu. So from that day forward, I was trying as, as I was teaching my Jeet Kune Do, I was um, on the nights that were my nights to teach on Friday nights and other nights, I'd lay the mats out and, and try and apply a few of the things I'd learned from Fabio. Mm. And then around that same time, I, I met Hickson. And, and that's when I knew immediately after training with him. And I've told the story many times, but, you know, he, he just yeah. was submitting a bunch of judo black belts without mm. using his hands. And uh, I knew that was the direction I wanted to go. So long story short, I, would, I started Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu probably about a year before I uh, opened up my own school. So I'm, I'm curious because something I went through and I see many of my audience, in my, people in my audience, uh, especially from the Aikido realm or traditional martial arts, they struggle with that identity of being attached to the, I'm an Aikido black belt, I'm an yes. instructor in this and that martial art. And to be, first of all, to be beaten down by let's say a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu guy or even a wrestler right. is already let's say traumatizing I think in a good way but most people are <laughs> afraid of that and then right. to, to, to start learning that instead of trying to justify their martial art uh, it's for most it's it's a difficult process was that not not a difficulty for you back then uh, being an instructor? No uh, I agree 100% with you and that's that's where intentions I think become very important for me it was it wasn't a a struggle because my initial reason behind why I started martial arts and why I was so fascinated by martial arts was because I wanted to know what worked and what didn't work. 
Right. So when I ran into somebody like uh, Fabio Santos or Hicks and Gracie, and they're showing me something that is just immediately empirically better than anything I was doing, I had no problem dropping what I was doing and just throwing myself into that. I wasn't attached to pass that way. And, and that was, of course, a great blessing for me. That's right. the biggest thing I run into when, when, I, uh, when I see people is it's very hard sometimes because identity gets so mm. interwoven with, uh, in the martial arts in an unhealthy way sometimes. It's very hard yeah. for people to let these things go. Right, right, right. Actually, one more thing in, in terms sure. of this subject I wanted to ask. You mentioned about the hypocritical side that you noticed yep. in, in, the, in the JKD community. It's something I noticed very badly in Aikido. And a lot of, a lot of people try to tell me, no, it's just people. But I have a, a feeling or I've discovered that the martial art, the practice, the way it's based can actually enhance a person's bad qualities. For example, the hypocr hypocritical side of the person. Do you, yes. do you feel that way too? That the Absolutely. You know, I've been doing this for... 25, 30 years, and I've traveled all over the world and taught hundreds of seminars, and I've taught all kinds of different people. These days, I'm mostly teaching at my own organization schools, but in the past, I would go to, I was usually going to a school that was either in the process of making that transition or a group of people from different martial arts who were curious about what I was doing. And you're 100% correct. And the reason I think is, and it goes back to what I was talking about before as far as what's true and what's not true. Mm -hmm. The unfortunate part with something like Aikido, and I don't know if you're going to want to use this part. I don't usually name names, but uh, I think Steven Seagal is actually a perfect example here. Oh, if you, if I have a whole video about him. Okay, good. So I was going to say you could always cut it out. But, yeah, no, no. you know, you could see if you look when he first came to the United States and, and he gave, I, I remember watching an interview he gave on the Merv Griffin show. Mm. And he, he was charismatic and he was in somewhat good shape and he was doing something. He was bringing a martial art to the United States, which at the time was more unknown than it is now. And it was interesting. Yeah. But as time goes by, um, he starts to develop uh, a reputation for having a certain skill set. His identity becomes interwoven with that reputation. And the reality, as you and I both know, is yeah. it's all a facade. I mean, he, right. he, and so you wind up being a human being who has to then defend a position that's ultimately indefensible. And mm. that's not good for human behavior. It, it turns people who began martial arts maybe because they were a little bit insecure, maybe they got picked on, and over the course of 10 or 15 years, it makes them more insecure and kind of dicks. You know, because of somebody that comes in that, you know, if a Fabio Santos walks into their school or Hicks and Gracie or, you know, just a high school wrestler, mm. that's, that person's going to be a threat. Right. And, um, and it doesn't always work out that way. Of course, I've met lots of people who are nice that did Aikido in different arts. But, sure. but in, the, in the cases where you see somebody who's a real jerk from those arts, it has it always been, I think, self-evident to me that those arts were not helpful to that person. They were something that actually magnified the negative qualities. Right, right. Yeah, it's something, as when I was brainwashed by the regular Aikido mindset, they were giving a hard time to MMA guys or even BJJ guys saying, oh, they're all... I don't know if that's the right head, meat, uh, right word, meatheads. Like yeah, yeah, they're yeah. just punching their brains. There's no intellect, and then I I believed in it until I got exposed to it, and then I realized it's it's almost the opposite. It's not it like safe but that I feel. I, I heard you speak about that in one interviews as well. That that humility is beaten into the person sometimes. That exposure yeah. to failure. Yeah, yeah. and it's not so much that it's that it's beaten in. I mean, in a in a good school, it's not going to be 
I understand exactly what you mean, but a, right. a, a different way to put it would be in order to get good at any functional martial art, whether mm-hmm. we're talking about Brazilian jiu-jitsu or judo or wrestling or boxing or Muay Thai, and all these arts have the same thing in common, which they all, they are all engaged in the opponent process. They're all alive martial arts. They all have a form of competition. To get good at any real martial art like that, you have to lose over and over and over and over. You know, when you first start boxing, you're getting hit in the head all the time. When you first start doing judo, you're getting thrown all the time. And nobody gets good at Brazilian jiu-jitsu. By the time someone receives a legitimate black belt in the art of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which for most people takes at least 10 to 12 years, yeah. they've had to tap out for real like, because, you know, if they didn't, they would, they would go unconscious or get something broken. They've had to tap out probably – 3,000 times. Mm-hmm. And just that process is, is humbling in and of itself. It's not a guarantee that it's going to make somebody a better human being. Mm. But for most people, it tends to, it tends to have a, a moderating effect um, on what otherwise would be, could be bad qualities. And it, and it does tend to humble you that way, which is going back to what we were talking about with something like Aikido or some of the other martial arts. Right. It's, it's the exact opposite process. Right, 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 right. You become the godlike creature, which is unchallenged. Yes. And, right. Actually, that, that does bring you to the next question of you've been doing this for so many years and looking at the subject. Do you have a formula per se in terms of distinguishing, if this is the right way to, to say it, false martial arts from effective martial arts, those who claim that work but don't really deliver? And vice versa. Right. Well, my formula has been aliveness. So the reason why I, I started to push the, the term aliveness so much is because I would constantly run into questions, which I myself was, was interested in. They're the reasons that I pursued martial arts to begin with. But the questions were, you know, why does this style work? Why does that style not work? Is, will Wing Chun work? Will Aikido work? Will this work? I started to see, okay, all the arts that are going to, that work. All the arts that are, that, uh, that are functional and all the arts that are fantasy-based, they all have the same things in common. And what they have in common is the training method or, or the epistemology. It's akin to science and critical thinking as well and in, the, in the sense that with critical thinking, it's, it's never really the conclusion that matters most because you can always sometimes guess and get the correct conclusion. What matters with critical thinking is the process that you use to arrive at that conclusion. Same thing with science. The methodology that we use to arrive at the conclusion is much more important than the conclusion because when the methodology is correct, then it's repeatable. And we start to build empirical knowledge that we can then pass on to the next generation to hopefully uh, make them better than we were. And that's how things become better. And that's how we grow. And that's a competition process. It is uh, what the American philosopher Daniel Dennett would call the opponent process. Mm. And all functional martial arts have that. And I call it aliveness. And for something to be alive, it, ha- it has to have timing, energy, and motion. And you mm. can remove one of those aspects and make it look somewhat more realistic in a demonstration, especially to someone that doesn't know what to look for. Right. But it still won't be functional, it has to have all three. And unfortunately, people still to this day that maybe haven't paid that much attention to SBG and and what we're actually talking about, they will equate it to sparring. Mm. And when I talk about, when I say aliveness, I don't mean sparring. Sparring is, of course, alive, but aliveness is incorporated into every drill we do and in any functional martial art. We're not unique that way. If you're you're going to a wrestling gym, you know, there's going to be alive drills. They don't have to be brutal. They don't have to be hard and they're not sparring. But there's a sense of timing because, uh, because they're alive. And that is the ultimate answer to why some arts work and some, some arts don't. Hmm. 
So alive drilling, you mean also by your partner resists, he doesn't give you the technique easy, or is there any other way to, to define that? Let me give you another example. So if I wanted to teach someone how to hit a, uh, a backhand, if I was a tennis coach, mm -hmm. I could give them a backhand form, I could give them a racket, and, I, and, I, and they could go into the garage, and they could just practice the backhand without a ball a thousand times a day every day, and, and I could correct how they're toe looks and you need to put your elbow down here and, you, and we could get really into that or I could lob a ball at them do I have to throw the ball hard you know um, do I do no I could just gently lob it at them when I was teaching my daughter uh, we were playing badminton the other day I did the exact same thing I just of course I was close to her and I slowly threw it up in the air and she missed a bunch of times and then eventually she hit it and as she started to hit it more successfully I'd back further up and I would throw it a little harder that's aliveness and that kind of training translates directly into self-defense if you get in a fight in a parking lot it translates into competition if you're going to fight MMA or go into a jiu-jitsu tournament and it translates in, into everything we do because it incorporates a sense of timing energy emotion And that's, that is the training method that needs to exist in martial arts in order for that martial art to be effective. And then as, if you allow form to follow function, you will end up with, after enough alive training and intelligent thought applied to the process, is something that will transcend culture and transcend venue in the same way that, you know, if I were to say to you, we're going to do Canadian geometry, you would think it was ridiculous because geometry is the mm. same in Japan as it is in Canada. So it is with a, a proper choke or a single leg takedown or, which is why, you know, if you're talking about wrestlers, no matter what version of wrestling they're, they've been training, if you're talking about Mongolian wrestlers or mm -hmm. Icelandic, you know, yeah. wrestlers or freestyle wrestlers or judoka, uh, when they get together and they work on a hip throw, there's a common language there based on how the human body works. Yeah. yeah. And it's been the same since the time of the Greeks as it is now, and it'll be the same in a hundred years. Right. And that is functional martial arts. Right, right, right. This is actually very interesting also comparing to my experience. It's been a year that I tried to functionalize my Aikido, but the more, and this is kind of the conclusion actually, I came in and announced publicly that the more I tried to functionalize it, the more it would start to look like wrestling, like BJJ. Yes. Uh, and then, but then the question comes for me, So how, how do you see the future of those traditional martial arts in terms of that eventually if you bring it to aliveness, the, it transcends the, the boundaries. It becomes, it's not as distinguishable anymore. Do you think that, exactly. that's, do you think that's the direction for all martial arts to go? Well, I think that that's the direction that all martial arts will go, assuming that you're interested in truth. Right. Um, if it's more about preserving a cultural form or, uh, you know, uh, uh, an art that is deemed to be more like a dance or something like that, then that, that's fine. But if you're actually training martial arts for the martial aspect of it, if what you're interested in is something that's going to be functional in one context or another, then ultimately, the longer you train aliveness, the more, you, you know, what you're going to do is going to look like boxing, wrestling, and Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Mm. Now, the, the one distinguishing thing I would say there is when people perform those arts well, and this is what I think Bruce Lee, had he lived, I mean, he talked endlessly about this, and I think most people misunderstood him, but we, he would talk about style being individual. It is very true that even though at the core of the motion, there's a correct way to do a hip throw, you know, and there's best practices as it relates to throwing a right cross or performing a rear naked choke on somebody. Once you take a fighter and they train for 10, 11, 12 years, they move in a way that's very unique to them. You know, there's no two Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioners that 
right. that roll exactly the same way. You're going to have fighters that look as different as Conor McGregor does from, you know, I don't, I don't know, Anderson Silva or from Hoist Gracie. You know, they'll all be very different. And so the variation then becomes not cultural, not because they've trained in a Japanese martial art or Korean martial art. The variation becomes individual. That, I think, is far more interesting and far more diverse than anything we get from cultural patterns. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's, it's crazy that traditional martial arts try to box people in. Like Aikido, for me, I'm a tall guy. Japanese yep. were tiny, and the founder was, was yes. tiny compared to me. And I can feel that some of the techniques that they developed, it's just way not for me. But I would right. still, as an Aikido instructor, I would teach them as they're legit. But then when I started to go on functional on the path of functionalizing, I would get teachings from others. For example, I'm a tall, lean guy. They would say, okay, use use your distance, use jabs to, to maintain distance. That's, that's your plus. And then I think about translating that to my students in Aikido. And I realized, oh, that that's going to be trouble because they're not the same size like I am. I cannot make this into a rule, which I will make everybody follow. So it's right. interesting that this issue comes up. In terms of that unique style of each individual, where, when do you feel is the right time for it to be developed? Do you, do you feel it still has right. to start with the same basics and there's a certain yep. time or is it go, does it go foot by foot? That's a great question. So the style is not something that I create. This is, these are interesting questions because I, ultimately I think what you're, what you're doing is you're getting to the heart of what went wrong with Jeet Kune Do as well. I mean, you're right. coming at it from the Aikido perspective, but they're mm. the same problems. Dan Inasano's version of martial arts that he taught, he teaches as Jeet Kune Do concepts. And, and the way that the majority of the Jeet Kune Do concepts instructors today apply that version is almost like a, an all-you-can-eat buffet at a, at a multicultural restaurant. You know, I'm going to mm. take a muay, little bit of Muay Thai kick and I'll put in a Silat sweet from Indonesia and I'll mm. put in a... And the idea that they have is that you can you kind of choose, you know, the kick you want and the punch you want. And that's not really how the... That, well, it isn't how real mm. style is developed in a fighter. The way real style is developed is you learn the fundamentals of base, of movement, of footwork, of distance, of body mechanics, of, of applying joint locks, the positions on the ground. Those fundamentals transcend culture. They transcend body. They transcend era. They transcend venue. The escape for a headlock is the same in the parking lot across the street if all of a sudden mm. I get taken down as it is in the jiu-jitsu mat as it is in MMA. There might be... Mm variations in terms of the tactics we use, but strategically the actual mechanics of what we're doing are, are identical. Mm -hmm. Now, as the person then begins to engage in fighting, as they begin to work against other human beings over and over again, not just all kinds of different people, over the course of years, their body starts to develop a way that's going to work best for them. And to a degree, some of it is definitely ends up being related to how you're built, if you're taller or shorter. But to be honest with you, the biggest determining factor that I've noticed over mm -hmm. the decades is personality. Wow. Okay. And that, that plays the largest role because, you know, I have at the present moment, 20 black belts in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, 20 of my own black belts. Not a, not a one of them is similar to the other. Now, mm -hmm. if you were to ask them, the fundamentals of how to apply a particular choke, they're all going to show you more or less the same way to do it mm -hmm. yeah. mechanically that, that one motion. Mm -hmm. But if you were to watch them roll and acquire that choke against a, a fully resisting opponent on the mat, you'd see 20 different ways of getting it. And then if you were to hang out with them for a week, just socially and spend time mm -hmm. with them, you'd go, aha, <laughs> now I understand mm -hmm. a little more of why they roll the way they do, because it's not right, necessarily right. because they're short or tall. It's just like, some people are more outgoing. Mm -hmm. Some people are more, 
And the thing that's really important, I think, for coaches to remember about that process is that process, and it's an evolutionary process, that mm. process is smarter than we are. Right. So even after, the, as, as long as I've taught full time, mm. there's no way I can look at someone and say, in three years, I think they're going to have this fighting style. Right. I have no idea. And so you have to just create an environment where people can you know, mm. play in such a way that they develop that own personal style without getting hurt, mm. um, where, where they feel safe to be vulnerable and be put in vulnerable positions. And mm. then through that environment, their personal style develops. So your job is more of just maintaining the environment and mm. the environment itself is what creates the style. Right, right. So it does sound very much, it's about the way you say it, it is about very much about the creating of the environment but do you feel the practitioner has to push it on some level or is it, is it a natural process if, if the environment is right? Or is, is there a certain, like for example, I'm a, I'm a beginner in BJJ. So is it something that I should be conscious of, of my own style, or is it still better to stick to the basics, nail them down, and then let it happen by itself? Yeah, you don't need to be conscious of it. And then when you're, no. when you're rolling, um, you're not going to be you're not going to have time to sit there okay. and think whether or not, you know, right. what you're doing or not doing. So in, in the beginning, it, it, when you're new to jujitsu, it's really just a struggle to learn how to relax and, and you get put into a really uncomfortable position and you'll have to maybe search back and say, okay, what am I supposed to be trying to do from here? And as you progress, it becomes less about having to think about what am I trying to do from here as it is how you're feeling how your opponents react to what you're trying to do. Mm -hmm. And then you, then you will start to react to that. And over time, um, your body starts to develop counters and, and, and timing. And that it only happens with, a, with an alive environment mm. and with the process of aliveness. It, it does not exist absent aliveness, but it doesn't have to be hard, right? It doesn't have to be brutal. It doesn't have to be rough. It doesn't have to be injury-inducing. All those things are counterproductive. And you could roll in a very relaxed way. And still get very good at jujitsu. And the only thing that would be, and very by very good, I mean empirically good at Brazilian jujitsu, you'd be able to pull mm. it off. And the only thing that might be counterproductive or might, you, the only problem you might run into is yeah. in a competition or a fight, if you've mm. never felt that, you know, crazy energy that people who are 100% mm. trying, to, trying to get you give you, mm. it might shock you. Right. And that could throw you off a little bit, but mm. a little bit of exposure to that and you'd find all the mechanics and, and everything you've been training are there for you, plus your body's not wrecked. Mm. And, and so uh, the, the process can be gentle. You don't have to push your body super hard. And, you know, if mm. you're going to go fight MMA in two years, that's different, right? Because mm -hmm. you have a timeline. And aliveness doesn't have to be rough. The, the resistance is always adaptive, but it does have to be alive. Something else that came up for me when, when you're speaking about the subject uh, you spoke about the the skills developing as as a person is exposed to the aliveness. How much is the ratio between information, knowledge, and the aliveness? Because there's definitely the trial and error, but then if there's no knowledge, no information, I, I even read in one of your texts you wrote that some BGJ instructors just come out and just give whatever random techniques uh, without a specific logic or, or order. And then it's something that I experienced as well, and that frustrates me a bit. Because there's the trial and error and I keep developing, but for me there's a sense that if there's the right information connected to the to the trial and error, then it's going to be much more effective than just trial and error and little information. So how do you consider that ratio between? Uh, I think you're exactly right. And you know, one thing to remember is and I 
and this is a problem not just with functional martial arts, but mm. um, or not just with traditional martial arts, but oftentimes even with functional martial arts. Mm. And speaking for Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, it, it is definitely a problem in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu more, and I think it's a little bit interesting, but more than it is in wrestling or mm. some of those arts. And the reason why it's a problem, and the problem is because you're good at Jiu-Jitsu, uh, you might even be a world champion mm. or good at, at wrestling doesn't mean you can teach. Doesn't mm. mean you can coach. I mean, some of the worst coaches I've seen and are, are world right. champions. Right. Right. And um, so you have to respect teaching as, as its own skill set. Mm. You know? The problem with Brazilian Jiu Jitsu is depending on who your instructor was, that may not mm. have come across. Whereas wrestlers, by the time they've gone through high school and then into college, they've usually had some really good coaches. Mm. And those coaches have usually, um, many of them have, you know, really great training methods and ways of drilling and, and ways of running practice, which is why they're coaches and right. you know, they're interested in winning. And so a lot, a lot of the wrestlers I've met have been actually been much better teachers than Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu people. Now I'm painting with a really broad brush because there's great instructors yeah. out there. Ha and so as to the ratio, I think the best way to maybe think about that is in terms of a lot of, uh, time allotment. So if you have an hour-long class, just as an mm. example, mm -hmm. a typical class in an SBG gym is we'd spend the first um, maybe 10 to 15 minutes working a skill. It's what we call the introduction. It's a three-stage process we call the I method. So that would be right. the introduction stage of the movement. And there, there's no resistance, and you're just kind of making sure that all the students in the class can do it mechanically correct. And if what you're doing, if in the course of 10 or 15 minutes, the students in the class can't all do it mechanically correct, you're probably teach, you're either not teaching, not a good teacher, or you're teaching something that's way too complex and you need to break it down into parts yeah. or yeah. do something different. Then after that 10 or 15 minutes, what we want to do is we want to drill alive. And so you create a drill where using adaptive resistance, where one side tries to put in into play that, that movement we just worked and the other side resists. And mm. the resistance, like I said, the, the is um, adaptive. So if the person that's drilling is completely unsuccessful, you need to dial down the resistance a little bit. And mm. if they're just killing it and they're doing really good, then you dial it up. And sometimes that perfect level of resistance um, works out naturally if both people are kind of at the same level. Sometimes it's great. And sometimes you'll have a black belt working with a blue belt. And so the black belt will tone it down a little bit, right? So the blue belt can work a little bit. And then when the blue belt goes with the black belt, they're going as hard as they can because the black belt's, you know, has a lot more timing. And then after we do a lot of rounds of drilling, which is usually the bulk of the class. So let's say that was now 30 minutes. So now we're mm. 45 minutes in. In the last 15 minutes, we would roll. We would spar mm. and oftentimes starting in that position and then just wrestling from there. And what that does is that's the I method, what we call the I method, introduce, isolate, integrate. The isolation stage is the drill stage and that's always alive. And it's usually the bulk of the class time. And that model is something I took from Hickson. Mm. And he, he, he calls it positional sparring, but he would spend, you know, he would teach something from mount or show something something and then let's just drill mount you know one side's yeah. trying to hold one side's trying to escape yeah. Yeah. and then they would wrestle at the end and I find when you teach that way what happens is students are able to apply the knowledge they learned in class they remember it and they can build on it continuously the other teaching model to contrast it to which is the one I mentioned I, I write about that that you mentioned is mm -hmm. some instructor shows some random techniques and usually it's something kind of fancy or new mm. quote-unquote because they're trying to they're just you know whatever sometimes it's yeah. because they're trying to show off and sometimes because they think people want the new sure yeah, and yeah. then everybody touches hands and they just start wrestling right 
And, uh, and, it, and if, if it's a school where everybody's super competitive and people roll real hard, then what, everybody's going to be super tense and defensive and they're going to go right back to their A, their a game, whatever they're good at, because they don't want to yeah. lose. And they don't want to get smashed on bottom. And all this new material, they're not going to take a chance and try the new material right. in class, you know, because they don't want to get crushed. Right, right, right. So, so in that kind of environment, sure, you'll still get people who are good. If you throw 500 bodies into that environment, you, you might even get a world champion. But the vast majority of the class either progresses very slow or at the very best slower than they would if they use the method like I suggested in the beginning there. Right, right, right. So it is really... Uh, an important step to first of all understand what you're doing and to be able to do it before you start to roll in that sense it's not just about yes. rolling rolling the hell out of yourself right mm. exactly. well another question i wanted to ask for me it's kind of self-evident talking to you but i think a lot of people are still struggling with it especially since since i'm acquainted with with the traditional martial arts primarily do you feel it is possible to develop an effective a system of self-defense in terms of through martial arts if there's no live resistance and just to give a short example of what happens to me so people are see they see my journey of trying to functionalize aikido and they they try to give me suggestions and a lot of aikido people they say oh just go to the roots of aikido the daikaru jujitsu and for me it's like well it's i don't see that there's a point because it's it's still dead it's still not alive but they imagine that since it's harder, it's more technical, there's more pain or whatever, that it, it is a better solution. But I right. have very high doubts, and I just wanted to, to double check with, with what's your opinion. I think your instincts are right on there. So, you know, mm -hmm. being, ha, something being more effective doesn't mean that it's rougher. <laughs> you know, and, and so one of, the, one of the things you run into is there are, there are a group of people that, don't classify themselves as traditional martial artists and they're not combat athletes. They're not involved in functional martial arts that I've been talking about. They're mm -hmm. like a third group of uh, what's often called in the United States anyway, reality-based self-defense. Okay. And for them, it's all about street fight and self-defense and they will critique traditional martial arts like Aikido and they will also critique what I do and say, well, these, these are sports guys, you know, and yeah. in, the in the street, you know, <laughs> they have, in the MMA, they have rules and in the street, there's no rules. In the street, there's multiple people, and, and I want to remind these guys, yeah, yeah, dude, the rules are there to protect you, not me. <laughs> but anyway, um, no, one of the fallacies they have, and usually, unfortunately, that group is also filled with a lot of what I call boy speak, but just a lot of bravado and talk about violence, and, you know, gouging people's eyeballs and stuff. And they have this idea that, you know, to, to be able to fight in the street, somehow you have to, yeah, everything has to be rough and, and like violent and everything. It's like, no, the... Body mechanics that are the best practices for delivering a knee to the skull or for picking somebody up and dropping them on their head or for choking them unconscious, which is the best way to, the most uh, reliable way to end a street fight mm -hmm. because you can't mm -hmm. always rely on being able to knock someone unconscious sure. yeah. um, and chokes work on everybody. Mm -hmm. But the, the mechanics to do that don't change from the cage to the mat to out front the Walmart parking lot. They're the same yes. mechanics. And your body's ability to apply those mechanics against somebody big and strong and aggressive and resisting against you don't change when you change environments. Those skill sets transcend the environment. And nobody who's truly honest with themselves thinks, mm -hmm. yeah, uh, in a street fight, I know I'd be able to beat up that MMA fighter. You know, it's mm -hmm. just unless you have the kind of skills that they have, you're going to get hurt. It, it doesn't matter mm -hmm. whether it's the street or 
whether it's in the, the sporting environment. So the street versus sports debate is something I consider to be a fallacy that they're mm -hmm. the same delivery system transcends over. So when we're mm -hmm. working with, and I have coaches that primarily in our organization that primarily work with military or law enforcement or do self-defense mm -hmm. clinics, mm -hmm. it's the same material mm -hmm. and it's the same training method. The training method becomes even more important. If you're a police officer that's trying to retain control over his gun, right. it's even more important that you train alive, right? Because you're talking about something that could potentially be fatal if you do it the wrong way. Yeah. So those don't change. I think that, does that answer your question right there? Yeah, basically, uh, actually, that does lead me to, to a follow-up question, which, which may make it even more clear. So for me, it totally makes sense. I entirely see your point. But then again, some people, they struggle actually to distinguish. Primarily, I think the difficulties between combat sports and self-defense, like what is, right. if there is a gap between those. And, and sometimes right. I do notice that, and I heard it's some a topic which is coming up in BJJ sometimes that a lot of gyms are into the sports aspect and the question is does it really potentially hurt the understanding of a person on how he would deal in a real setting is there a bridge and what what that bridge is yeah that that definitely uh, leads into exactly what I was I was going to say so mm. there is an aspect to what we do so if you train let me put it this way yeah. the vast majority of people that sign up at my gym and don't come here because when they, when we first sign them up and we interview them and we ask them why they're interested in training Brazilian Jiu Jitsu or MMA or what, whatever they're signing up for, it's almost never competition. Sure. In almost every single case, they say they're interested in getting in shape and self-defense. Mm -hmm. And over time, after the first year or two, if they really fall in love with Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, they, they really enjoy the arts we do. Some of them will gravitate towards competition. Mm. And when they're here in the, in the school and they're working that, they're always working jujitsu versus jujitsu. So they're training against mm -hmm. somebody else that knows how to fight and knows um, the counters to, to what they do. Mm. And, that, and that becomes the game. And if while they're doing that, let's just say for sake of argument, there's somebody that gravitates more towards the jujitsu end of it, they never put the strikes in. And all of a sudden they, they wind up in a fight and they might potentially put their body and their head in a position where they can take mm -hmm. punches because they're they're thinking more about a tournament situation mm -hmm. as opposed mm -hmm. to an MMA situation. Having said all that, because what we do at SBG is we focus more on the fundamentals, what we teach tends to transcend those different environments because mm -hmm. there's very little change that has to be made. And the biggest thing that I think the athletes have to confront as they switch from, say, gi jiu-jitsu to MMA, if, if they want to make that transition, is more psychological mm. in the standpoint of just being able to learn how to compose themselves as somebody else is trying to hit them in the head, and less technical. Because most of the guard work we do, most of the movements we do, because they're so fundamental-based, translate directly into that environment. Mm. In a self-defense situation, it's exactly the same. So the jiu-jitsu is going to be even simpler. The jiu-jitsu is going to be even more fundamental. It's going to be the jiu-jitsu that you're going to want to use in a fight to keep yourself safe is going to be the jiu-jitsu you learn in the first two years of the art, what, you know, white belt jiu-jitsu, which has always been my favorite jiu-jitsu. It's the jiu-jitsu I love. It's what Hickson teaches. Mm. And that's what's going to work in that environment and the only piece then that, that is missing is everything before the fight. And that is, mm -hmm. uh, as it relates to self-defense, that's a process of education. And it's things mm -hmm. like, you know, being aware of your environment, knowing where to go and where not to go, understanding how violent criminal actors will come up and interview you, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, right, right, right. Um, but it's mm -hmm. not the physical. Well, that actually makes me very curious to ask 
from what I read about your relationship to martial arts, you you perceive it. It sounds like you, it's very much also related to a lifestyle, to to philosophy. But then I'm curious how much how much for you martial arts, if that doesn't sound like the perfect word, but let's say martial arts, uh, how much for you it, it is about self defense? Do you see it first of all as a self defense practice, which then uh, expands into lifestyle and philosophy, or whether it's lifestyle philosophy, which just has the benefit of self-defense. It's all of the above. I mean, for me personally, martial arts is my life, right? It's how I feed my kids. It's the only job I've had for the last 25 years. It's, right. so it's, uh, it's, it's all, of, it's all of that. Mm-hmm. I think people, when they join a school like mine or a functional martial arts school, they will often join with one intention and that intention changes over time. So I said a a good percentage of the students that sign up at our school will say they're here for self-defense and we will make sure. And I, and I make an effort that when they're going through the foundational classes in their first couple years here at the gym, the jujitsu that they're learning really is jujitsu that would work in self-defense. It's, it's the kind of fundamental jujitsu that I would want them to know to stay safe. And we address, things like, okay, at this position, the person will hit you in the head here, or this Mm. position you could get needs. So you have to protect yourself here. That's what we do. And then over time, like I said, after three or four years, they start to become better at jujitsu. They start to become um, a lot more comfortable with themselves and their body and what they can do and what they can't do. You know, after three or four years of jujitsu, pretty skilled. And if they're mature and they're not, you know, hanging around dumb places with dumb people, Mm. probably very unlikely to get in a fight. And if they did, they certainly have a massive advantage on anybody that hadn't been training in art like ours mm-hmm. for three or four years. And so oftentimes they'll, they'll start to, you know, just naturally move away from training mm-hmm. so much because of self-defense mm-hmm. into training more because they just love the art. They love coming in and getting the workout in with their friends. They're part of the community. And it, it just be, the activity itself becomes something that they're doing because they enjoy it. And that, that's kind of an organic, natural, I think, healthy process. If they're in a job, I'll give you an example. One of our black belts, uh, Paul Sharp, he's a police officer mm. and he works in a fairly rough part of the United States. And mm. so for him, he, he's always, he's also training police officers, right? And he's training people sure. who do that for a living. So for him, he's always going back and his mind is always thinking about the, the fighting aspect of what we do, sure. the the weapons retention aspect of what we do because that's part mm-hmm. of his job. But if he lived here in Portland and, and didn't have that job, I could see that after four or five years, he might not be thinking oh. about that as much as he otherwise would. There's, it's more of a side question, but because I discovered that what you've been doing for those 25 years, it's very much something that I've just got into in terms of empirical thinking and just looking at martial arts really from at the essence of them, but myself, I have this deep desire to, to to share my process that others wouldn't have to work so hard or so long to to realize how how it really works. Uh, and you've been doing this for, uh, as far as I understand, for for a long time. So I'm curious: Did you ever get tired of just people, still new people coming up again and again, who just don't get it or resist that kind of uh, mentality of realizing their limits? Uh, is it ever tiresome or how, how is it? Uh, no, but you know, I'm, I'm in a kind of a privileged environment in that uh, mm. I get to do podcasts with people like you and, and, I, and of course enjoy talking about it in this context. And um, I'm usually only ever teaching people who have paid good money to, <laughs> to, to take my class. So everybody's happy to be there and I'm happy to be there. And so I don't really run into, into that 
so much anymore. Uh, mm. When I first started, mm. you know, I would I would argue online and and um, <laughs> and I would debate and I and I would go right. back and forth and and now I I feel to a degree that. The, you know the information is out there you you obviously found me and and the yes. and the essays and things that we've written and there's so many more people that have that not only know what I know and and have uh, gone through that material but can articulate it in ways you know better to a different generation on different platforms that I don't really necessarily feel that um, I don't feel compelled to do that in the same way I did but I still enjoy coming on and and having these conversations and if I were to go to a school that wasn't you know one of my schools or mm. a functional martial arts school and give and do a seminar which I still do on occasion I mm. will spend a great deal of time while I'm there talking mm. to them about aliveness and talking to them about what healthy training is and what truth is and epistemology and the opponent mm. process because you know, I, I feel it's been, it's a good thing for people. It's something that I've seen that has had positive effect on uh, so many people. So, mm. no, I, I actually feel, um, to be honest with you, lucky mm. to, to be able to do mm. this for a job. Yeah, nice, nice. And this, this is a bit of a silly question, but I guess it's just in the back of my mind because I'm very much, it's very active for me. I get all these comments and I read through those comments and sometimes I get upset about, oh my God, people still think that or that. And and yeah. uh, do, do you feel there's, so again, silly question, but just very interested to, to ask you. So do you feel there's an end? Do you feel there, there's going to be an end for those closed, narrow-minded mentalities of we are right, they're wrong, we don't need to test ourselves. And uh, do you think it's eventually it's going to push through and and the majority of martial arts will be more about the essence of, of what it's supposed to be? Or do you think it's there's always going to be that part of people who are just not going to get it? There will always be that part of people. And you can see it not just in, uh, in martial arts, but yes, you know, yes, yes. how many newspapers around the world still have an astrology section? Right. Yeah. And, uh, and, and let's not even get started on religion. So, yeah, right. you know, the, the world is filled with superstition and there's places around the world where they're still burning witches and, and uh, hunting mm-hmm. down albino kids because they think that they're born from the devil, you know. So there's a, there's a lot of work to do as far as critical thinking and, and, mm-hmm. and promoting reason. And, and there's a lot of people that are doing it in a lot of uh, – genres that are a lot more important than you know the one i chose which is kind of fun you know martial arts it's not like a mm. medical superstition or or some of the other things that that mm. uh, people have to contend with but i think it it will always to a degree be there because of the way our brains evolved and the fact that you know our brains are prone to make certain mistakes having said all that you know if you look at the data and you see how incredibly things have changed for the positive in our mm. generation in every generation you go back from our generation previous, it's going to get, you know, in terms of superstition and uh, unenlightened human beings, you're going to find a bigger and bigger and darker and darker past. And so we're clearly moving in the right direction as, as a species. And the other thing I I would just say as a side note, and I don't think that's a silly question at all, by the way, but the other thing I would say is, (laughs) you know, people would often say to me, do you think, and this is, People say this about all kinds of debates, right? right. And, and they'll talk to, to people who are debating afterwards. And they'll say, do you think you're ever going to change the mind of that person? That person's mind's never going to change. Why do you bother? Mm-hmm. And yeah. I have to remind them, well, maybe you're right, but there's however many, 200, 300, 3,000 people that observe that conversation. 
And I will yeah. guarantee you yeah. that in that audience, there's going to be a, a, a large group of people whose minds did change or who yeah. were now exposed to an idea that before the debate, they didn't even know existed. You know, mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot of people say that oftentimes I've heard people say that about uh, someone like Richard Dawkins or, or Sam Harris, mm-hmm. but, but there's a lot of kids that might grow up in certain environments or certain parts of the world that have never heard the kind of arguments that somebody like Richard Dawkins would put forward. So whether you're religious or not religious, the exposure to that conversation and the exposure to those right. arguments, even though it's an argument that's been going on since mankind could talk mm-hmm. and, and really the same structurally, the same arguments have existed for that particular topic since the time of the Greeks and nothing's really changed. Um, There, every generation, there's still a whole bunch of people who need to be exposed to it. And so I I think it's really good to stay on the positive. And, and um, I will tell you this, I have uh, a file in my uh, email Mm -hmm. filled with thousands, literally thousands of emails that I've received over the, over the years from people that thank me because, Mm. you know, they, they, saw something that was written somewhere and they decided, you know, I'm, I'm going to change course. And now they're doing some form of functional martial art and they're really grateful. So I think it's, I think you should, you know, when I saw your video where you went in with the MMA guy, Mm. I was impressed because most people won't do that. You had a very positive attitude about doing it. You were sincere and completely honest about the results. Mm. And then you posted it all of which takes balls and that will help a whole bunch of people. So I'm sure you get some, I'm sure you get some hate mail um, (laughs) comments, but you know, I would guarantee you, you're going to help a lot more people than you're going to make mad. Mm, Cool. Thank you. Well, this is, yeah, it's, it's, it's something that I did consider even, even approaching you for this conversation. You are doing this on a, such a high level for me. It's still just a development process. But then the question would come up, so is it worth it? Should I do it? Because there's people like you who are doing it already on, on a different level. But then in the end, I came to the conclusion that, yeah, it, it still does because it's just, it's endless. The people are always there who will, who will need to hear it, who will, who will still have their ideas. Some people still don't know who you are, although you're, yeah. you're, you're so big. <laughs> so it's crazy. It's crazy that there's always that space to, to spread the message. There's, there's always that space you're going to reach an audience um, that might not ever, you know, come into contact with me or anybody else mm-hmm. like me. And uh, you're going to be able to speak to, you know, it, all the original or the, the majority of the original SBG instructors, mm-hmm. the people, and they're all still with me. Um, uh, but the, you know, the, the older black belts and the, and the, the men and women who were part of the foundation of my curriculum and, and my organization, they almost all came from the JKD world. Wow. And the reason why they almost all came to the JKD world is because, you know, my message to a degree, because that's where I was coming from, was, yeah. was to them. And, and, uh, and, you know, the debate boards mm. and, the, and the places where it got posted were Jikundo ones. And so that, that's the group that kind of found me. And you'll be able to do the same thing in, mm. or, or probably already have with Aikido. And I think that that's great. Mm. Yeah. It's, it does want me uh, bring to want to ask, uh, in terms of Jeet Kune Do, uh, I just recently heard, I haven't seen it yet myself, that you've, you, you created a functionalized, functionalized version of it. And no, no? um, what, what that was, was when I first came out with my first set of videos, um, yeah. and I believe this was 
1996, 97. I think it was about 1996 when they first mm. came out. And um, I, I titled them Functional Jeet Kune Do. Mm, okay. And then if, if you see them, it, it's essentially, there are a couple movements that, techniques that would have come from Jeet Kune Do, in particular the straight blast, which, which we modified to more of a boxing blast. Mm. But basically what you're looking at is MMA. And okay. I've always been careful when I teach jujitsu, especially to make sure I give credit to my coaches. And, and my main coach, of course, I need to make sure I mention this, is Chris Howder, who, who's been the one that gave me my black belt, one of the original American coaches. Mm. And then the people who first exposed me to it, men like Hickson and, and Fabio Santos that I mentioned. Mm. But when Hickson first gave me permission to teach, which was before I had had the privilege of meeting Chris, the one thing he asked is he said, don't call it anything else. Make sure it's you call it Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So I mm. titled that series Functional Jeet Kune Do because I was trying to speak to that community sure. because yeah. that's where I'd come from and that's, that's what I felt comfortable talking about and that's kind of where just a lot of the language and what I was using was, was tied in with that community. Right. Um, but when I, when I actually get down and say, okay, we're going to work on the ground, I, I I'm saying when you want to learn ground fighting, you need to train Brazilian jiu-jitsu. This is from Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and this is from my mm-hmm. instructor, Chris Howder or Hickson, and give credit where credit is due that way. I think that's very important. Right. Yeah, that, that's actually why I wanted to ask, because I did not see that video. And just, just before I interviewed, like some hours before, I, somebody wrote me that, oh, you should connect with, uh, with Matt Thornton because he made some he made functional jiu-jitsu. For me, it was, there was this question like, well, I, I, did, I tried to functionize Aikido for a year, and it, eventually I came to the conclusion, which, which we spoke already about, it just doesn't, in a sense, it doesn't really make sense. It's not fair. It's still in that narrow box of wanting to prove things rather than really picking up the best things which are out there. And, right. and I was just wondering, so did, did it really... I understand your, uh, I understand your question now. Um, and, and you're right, and I'm glad to hear you say that. And... Um, because I've seen people go through that pursuit of trying to functionalize Aikido or trying to functionalize Wing Chun, and it's always a bit quixotic because in the end, what you're going to end up with is what we're doing anyway. Right. You're going to end up doing some form of MMA. Right, right. Um, so as far as the Jeet Kune Do term, let me, let me explain it a little bit better from a slightly, in a slightly different way. Yeah. To this day, I believe that what we do at SBG is Jeet Kune Do right. in the sense of it is what Bruce Lee advocated for. Right, right. And I think what Bruce Lee advocated for in his writing and what you hear him talking about is what we do at SBG. Right. And so I actually do think we do functional Jeet Kune Do. Right. Having said all that, <laughs> um, it's not what you're going to find in most of the rest of the Jeet Kune Do community who's still right. doing hand trapping from Wing Chun and C-Lot sweeps and, and, mm-hmm. and forms and mm-hmm. clicking sticks together in, in a very impractical way. So, mm-hmm. uh, but, but that's why I don't use that term really anymore. It's not in my advertisements. You're not going to see it at the gym. But if somebody <laughs> were to ask me, hey, do you guys still teach Jeet Kune Do? And I'd say, yeah. do, really, you know. Yeah, nice. Uh, just a couple more questions. Uh, sure. Could you give an advice to people who are having doubts about their martial arts, uh, who are questioning it? Because I do meet a lot of people from my channel who who have these doubts and they're 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 just not sure what to do. How do you think they should handle that situation? There are. I think it's it's uh, it's really important to go back and ask yourself why am I training? Mm-hmm. You know why am I 
doing this? They should ask themselves, what are they really interested in, in learning? What are they inter- really interested in achieving? And if what they're really interested in achieving is something functional, mm-hmm. then, and you come to the conclusion that what you're doing isn't functional, my advice would be let it go sooner rather than later. <laughs> and yeah. the sooner you let it go, and you move on to something else, the happier you're going to be because mm-hmm. there's only so much time we have in the world. Now, mm-hmm. it was interesting. Before I came on to do this interview with you, mm-hmm. I was watching a video that just came out of Hicks and Gracie teaching a scissor sweep. Okay. A scissor sweep is one of the first movements I ever learned in jiu-jitsu. So I, I learned mm-hmm. that in like 1992 or some whatever it was. Yeah. And I've been teaching it for 25 years. Yeah. And yet the de- there's a detail on there that he showed that I had never understood before. That's what I love about jujitsu and that it's, yeah. it, there's the depth of it. And then I think to myself how little time I have that, you know, by the time I eventually die and, I'm, and I, that'll be when I stop doing jujitsu. But when that day happens, how much there would have been left, you know? So, so what time really do I have to waste on something that's not functional. Yeah, I want, yeah. I want my, the what little time I have that's not spent with my family and my loved ones where mm. I'm doing my martial arts. I want that to be, I want to make that time value. I want to make that, that's precious time to me. I want to make as much use of that time as possible. So if that's how they feel about their life mm. and their martial art, then I would suggest let go of what you're doing sooner mm. rather than later. Well, it took me a year, but <laughs> but I got there, thank God. Still, since I still have just a bit more time left, so I'm searching for the best answer that I can right now, especially in terms of self-defense. First of all, let me just ask, what is it you're interested in training for? Well, I something which I'm more or less attached to right now. Attachments are not good, so, so I'm, I'm considering, considering it. But uh, I came to Aikido with the desire to protect myself, the loved ones, and also with the desire not not to do it in a violent way, which I'm questioning myself whether that makes sense to hold to that belief. But I would be interested to see just just okay. So what is real effective self defense, and if if it is possible to do it in less with less violence than more violence? Again, as as I said, I'm very active questioning myself that. But just just to basically if to make it coming to the essence to really be able to get exposed to what self-defense is uh, and to gain okay. the skills. Uh, so it sounds like I could okay. visit your school. But <laughs> So what you're interested in doing is learning how to defend yourself physically mm. using as little force as necessary. I guess. Uh, you, don't just, use, just, you don't want to use more than you have to. In a sense, and or basically yeah. just just self-defense, to, to, to know that I'm capable of protecting myself and others, let's, let's say, to begin with. Uh, yeah. But also, but the level of the, what you mentioned, the, the before the physical aspect itself, the psychology, the environment, uh, knowing the, the de-escalation, and also searching okay. for those answers. Okay, two things. What I, what I would do is I would say, Number one, find yourself a good Brazilian jiu-jitsu school where you feel comfortable. When you walk mm-hmm. in, the environment feels comfortable. The mm. instructor seems nice. You don't, get a, you don't get any kind of bully vibe. And then I would say th- I, would, I would throw myself into that. And mm. everything you're going to learn about jiu-jitsu is going to be helpful and applied directly to your goal. Especially if you keep that goal in mind as you're training and you'll see that some positions better than others, some, you know, some movements better than others, but, mm. but you need it all. So that, and then for the educational aspect of it, I would steer you to literature and I would first of all, send you to Gavin DeBecker's work. If you've not read it, the gift of fear and protecting the gift. And those would be my two 
strongest things. And I don't know, are you familiar with the Jocko Wilnick podcast? No, not yet. Okay. That's, that's a good podcast. Uh, he was a former Navy SEAL commander, and uh, he, he's a very interesting guy, but he also happens to be a black belt in, in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and, and people often ask him, you know, what do we need for fighting, self-defense, combat? And he certainly has the, you know, the CV to talk about that in a way that almost nobody does, um, given his, his experience as a combat vet. And he's he articulates why jujitsu is so important often on that podcast, as well as reading from various books on the topic of violence and self-defense in, mm. in every episode. So violence is, is an issue that he discusses quite a bit on there. And I, th- I think that's a great resource. But between jujitsu and the physicality of it and information that you'd get from a book like Gavin DeBecker's The, the Gift of Fear, you're going to have all the tools you need in your tool chest to be able to defend yourself and your family with mm. the exception of maybe a firearm, depending on where you live and what kind of threat you're under. Not, not much. Not, that's not a big okay. issue. That would be the route I would send you. Right. So basically, I, think mm. I, I just think that would be the quickest for you. Right. So it sounds like that I don't necessarily, in terms of that informational side, that I can really get down to informational. I don't need to be with a person who will tell me all about it. I can also find when it. You're talking about, when you're talking about all the, the pre-altercation aspects of fighting, right. I, I have an acronym that I use for that, which is MIND. And the first part is maturity, which is the single biggest aspect of keeping yourself out of violent confrontations. And I think even at a macro level, the biggest indicators of people who are going to get involved in, in violence. But the second part is your intelligence and, and being able to access the right information and, and use your brain. Third part is being able to notice what's going on around you. Of course, that's MIN. And then when we get to the D part, we're basically talking about deterrence and distance. Managing distance to the threat is what all violent conflict is about. That aspect of self-defense and that aspect of violence is something that even if it were taught to you by an instructor, it would be done so verbally with the except once we get into actual physical contact. And by that, I mean, even a conversation, somebody's coming up to you to ask you a question in the street, right? At that point, I would say that we're dealing with the martial arts part of it, but everything up to that point, you can get from books. And also, it does sound like uh, if I get enough skill in BGJ that the gap for transitioning to self-defense to just bringing those points of strikes or the distance or, or whatever that may be, it's not a big, a big gap to handle afterwards. No, you know, the thing is, it's kind of funny. When, when, I, was in, when I was teaching and training in Jukuno, mm-hmm. one of the things that a lot of those guys were obsessed with was being able to enter, 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 being able to enter safely, yeah. right? That, that became like a goal and they would go sidekick, hand, and then they would mm-hmm. try and enter with these tools. And the first time you like really, and you've experienced this in your uh, video that I watched, with the MMA fighter. Mm-hmm. Uh, entering on somebody isn't usually the problem. The hard, the hard part about fighting is keeping people off you. Mm-hmm. You know, clinch just happens. If somebody's bound and determined that they're going to tie you up, you're probably going to get tied up. And by, mm-hmm. by the same token, if somebody starts flailing punches at your head and you want to go in and hug them, that's not usually the problem, right? The problem, it's, it's, I'm not saying it can't be, and there's not intelligent ways to do it, but acquiring the clinch in a fight or in a confrontation isn't the hardest skill. It's actually quite simple. And, and there's some simple ways to, to do it safely. And then you can train it with aliveness and you can, you can get good at that skill very quickly. The hard part about fighting is what you do after you're clinched up because now you're dealing with another human being strength and base and weight and, right. and, uh, and how you manage the fight from that point forward. And you're going to learn that from not just jujitsu, but wrestling, all the grappling arts. And it's safe. You're not going to get punched in the head and, and, and incur traumatic brain injury. And it, it's going to apply in every environment in self-defense or if you decide you want to compete. It's fun. 
It's going to teach you about your body and you're going to learn how to handle and manage men who are bigger and stronger than you in that environment through grappling. And so that's always the direction I, I tend to send people. Right. I see. And also if somebody's not holding on to you, why didn't you just run away? Yeah, right. right. Unless you're protecting someone, that's a yes. different scenario, but there's not yeah. a lot of situations where you need to square up with somebody, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. True, 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 true. Wow. Okay. I think, okay. Last thing I have in my mind. I think that's the last thing. When I said, because I really, I, I think I, I very much relate to you that it's all about the essence. There's, I don't want to do, do, uh, have any more delusions. And when I mentioned the, I was questioning that part already myself, but that, so Aikido, technically art of peace, dealing with someone without using violence. I think I heard a bit of a, a bit of a doubt in, in, in you, right. and I have that doubt myself. Could, could you say right. a few words about that? So, Two things. I, I admire the ideal of Aikido, mm. but I also think it's utopian. And in many ways, it's a utopian delusion. Mm. The closest you're going to come to that ideal is Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Right. Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is, does what Aikido claims to be able to do. Yeah. Um, and, it's, and it's still not that easy, right? You, mm-hmm. you have to have uh, size and strength do matter and in order to, and youth and speed and, and explosiveness. And in order to overcome that, you have to have superior technique and more importantly, or just as importantly, the timing to use that superior technique from hours and hours and years of live training. But it can be done. And when you see a high-level Brazilian jiu-jitsu person, you know, I have female black belts who will consistently tap out big, strong men that walk in here because they're very good at Brazilian jiu-jitsu. But, right. but make no mistake, they've worked really hard uh, over mm-hmm. years to be that good. So that's the first part I would say. The second part about violence in general, you just have to, I think people have to understand and come to grips with what's out in the world. You know, there's a story I, I, I write about, I'm, I've been, I'm almost done working on a book that I've been working mm-hmm. on for the last five years about violence. <laughs> and there's a story I tell in there of the Pettit family, which was a, a upper middle class family on the East Coast. The husband was a doctor. He had a wife and two young daughters. And one day, a couple guys who'd been casing out his wife and daughter, they'd seen them shopping at the grocery store and decided they liked the way they looked and that they looked like they had some money. They went to the Pettit family, walked in the uh, downstairs door that happened to be unlocked. The husband was asleep on the chair. They hit him with a bat, tied him up. This is a horrible story, so if you want to cut it out for your for your uh, Depends, body, depends. I mean, if you're okay with it. But then they, they tied up the young women, uh, preteen <laughs> girls, raped them, uh, raped the mom, murdered her, and then they lit the girls on fire. Uh, covered the girls in gasoline while they were laying in the bed and lit them on fire. When you hear them interview or listen to them talk, they don't have any remorse about doing that or concern (laughs) about what they had done. I'm not saying that there's a lot of people walking around the world like that. I'm not even saying that I don't even think that they were true sociopaths, Mm -hmm. but there are people walking around the world like that. And the only thing on this earth that has ever stopped people like that from using physical violence to take everything you own and and everything away from you, including your loved ones, Mm -hmm. is violent physical force or the threat of it. It's the only thing that's ever stopped them. Good Mm -hmm. intentions aren't going to stop them. Being nice to them isn't going to stop them. Mm -hmm. Cooperating isn't going to stop them. So Mm -hmm. if your past somehow happened to cross... The only thing that's going to stop them is the fact that they're either worried that you're going to harm them some way physically and capable of it, or that you do actually harm them some way physically and are capable of it. 
And the acknowledgement of that, and that that's not just the world that we live in now, but it's the world that we've always lived in. It's the world that your ancestors lived in, increasingly so compared to now. And the fact that you wouldn't be here having this conversation with me right now, mm. and we wouldn't be enjoying this conversation together, mm. if our ancestors, some of them, weren't pretty good at homicide. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a part of who we are. It's a part of nature. It's a part of, and as human mm-hmm. animals, and it's part of our evolutionary process. And what you don't want to do, uh, my personal opinion, what, what we don't want to do with something like that, that's so intrinsic to our biology, like reproduction, like sex is, is to either vilify it and demonize it, mm-hmm. or on the other end of the scale, to romanticize it and create a fetish out of it. Mm-hmm. And so when I see the people who move too far over to the peacenik side of things and they start to get into, the, into being pacifists or close to it, I see the same kind of mental imbalance that I see with guys who, you know, want to dress up in camouflage and be Rambo yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, and carry yeah, yeah. big knives. It's just two, mm-hmm. two extremes of the same problem. Right, and yes. so I think when you have an issue like violence, you want to have a healthy relationship to the topic. Right, right, right. And a healthy relationship to the topic is you'll do what you have to do to defend your family. And there, there's no idealism one way or the other about that. I, it's so true. It's, I, I, I guess one of the doubts I had is because it is very, still very self-preoccupied, that desire to be peaceful, to come across yeah. as peaceful, to say, oh, I would not use violence. It's, it's yeah. not about the thing. It's about my image, which is, it's bullshit. It is. I'll tell you what, I, I love a lot of the Buddhist philosophy and mm. I've looked around on over the years on iTunes for some good Buddhist podcasts and there's a few, but mm. I find myself unable to listen to a lot of them because as yes. soon as I turn it on and I hear the guy's voice and he's talking in that really soft spiritual <laughs> voice, I'm like, Dude, I can't, I can't do it. I can't listen to you anymore because it's so narcissistic. True. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I really, I really see what you mean. Yeah, it's and it's 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 as well. Uh, I, I feel it's so easy to speak about all these things until we're really exposed to it. And I haven't been so much exposed to it, but I can see through that. I can talk about peace all I want, but if the moment comes for violence, probably I'll naturally be drawn to violence. I won't think about my philosophy and so on. So right. And if you're protecting your loved ones, I would hope right. you would be right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very, I, I see the time is running out, so I'll, I'll wrap up in just in a second, but, but I'm very happy we had this, especially the, I mean, all the conversation, obviously, but, but this part, because it saved me, I think it saved me another year now <laughs> of well, not me trying to idealize and prove an idea rather than really look for the essence. So that's very cool. Good. Well, you know, I appreciate that. And, uh, I would say too, I enjoyed that video and I, and like I said, I think you should, you should keep doing what you're doing. Cause I think you're, you're actually doing a uh, public good. Nah, thank you. Thank you. Ah, it's, that means a lot to me to hear that. Thank you.